Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. My name is Jason Dempsey. I'm with the Military and Veteran Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, today we've got a special panel on an important topic, but unfortunately one that may not be first and foremost on the minds of most Americans. Um, I think for those of us uh, who have studied and dealt with Afghanistan, one of the common perennial challenges has been uh, the disinterest from much of the American public. Uh, usually Afghanistan pops up into the news uh, we get some attention on it and then it fades and Afghanistan is left to deal with the problems it had while the rest of the world turns its attention elsewhere. Uh, now the time is unique in that the rest of the world's attention uh, has turned inward to each country, yet Afghanistan is now dealing not only with the problems it had prior, uh, but with the problems that has led the world to divert its attention as well. So today we're going to talk about the impact of the pandemic on Afghanistan and what it means for the overall peace process and what it means for the future of United States involvement. We have a great uh, panel today here with us uh, that really covers the span uh, or has been involved in the U.S. policy towards Afghanistan uh, for decades now, as well as some great perspective from inside the country. Joining us is Laurel Miller, uh, director of the International Crisis Group's Asia Program. Uh, she was formerly a senior RAND expert, uh, spent her early years in government involved in peace negotiations in the Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo area. Uh, but most relevant to this, spent 2013 to 17 as the acting special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan in the Department of State. Also with us, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is Zora Razek. She's the president of the Global Watch Group and a strong advocate for human rights in Afghanistan. Uh, she formerly created the Office of Human Rights and Women's International Affairs uh, and headed that office for seven years under the Karzai administration. Uh, third panelist we've got today is Barnett Rubin from the Center on International Cooperation. Uh, Barnett has been writing and talking about Afghanistan since the early 90s and before. Uh, he was a special advisor to the UN during negotiations in 2001 around what became the, the Bonn Agreement. And then from 2009 to 13, spent his time as senior advisor to the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. So we have some great perspectives today. And I have, do have to say that, you know, as those of us in the United States, as our tensions are shifting inward, uh, both to our personal health and safety or our jobs, or our local government. One of the interesting things uh, was that Barnett was one of the first uh, to kind of raise the red flag uh, early on to say, uh, we also need to be paying attention uh, to Afghanistan, uh, because what's about to hit uh, has some very significant consequences. Uh, so with that, I would like to turn it off first to Zora. Uh, and Zora, essentially, as the one probably um, most connected to Afghanistan, could you just give us a sense uh, for how both the, the people and the government of Afghanistan are reacting and how the pandemic has unfolded uh, over the last couple of weeks and months? 
Thank you, Jason. Um, uh, Afghanistan, like most other parts of the world, um, started with a slow response to the pandemic and then uh, a panic. So uh, at the beginning, maybe uh, January and February, when um, the pandemic hit uh, Iran, the Afghanistan uh, Western neighbor, um, it, the um, Afghan government were very busy with the elections results and the uh, talks with the Taliban, uh, and attention was not given to hundreds of and thousands of refugees uh, returning from Iran, uh, fearing that they are going to uh, catch uh, coronavirus in Iran, and also a lot of uh, workers who seasonal workers who are in Iran, and because of the uh, lockdown in Iran, they lost their jobs. So they all uh, rushed back to Afghanistan, not not realizing that some of them had the virus already. So they crossed the border without being screened and without being checked. And they basically, um, in, in, in the western city of Her Herat, province of Herat, where is now uh, the epicenter of the, the pandemic, uh, all these people um, started uh, there and then uh, spread to their own villages and, and cities and towns and spread the virus to even the most remote parts of the country. And at that time, the government did not take the uh, necessary um, actions and measures to uh, contain the virus or to stop um, or at least quarantine the um, uh, refugees and a place, both because of their preoccupation with the political issues and because the government uh, actually lacked the kind of um, resources and uh, knowledge and capacity about a pandemic. The preparedness of Afghanistan was probably the worst in, in, in any part of the world because of the lack of that kind of um, uh, resources and the, the um, capacity in, in, in terms of uh, uh, expertise and uh, human resources. So that led to a later um, uh, sort of uh, attention of the Ministry of Public Health and, and the government. Um, and because there are two, uh, two governments or two head of states unfortunately uh, so it, it wasn't it wasn't really clear that who's going to do what but the ministry of health to their credit uh, tried at a later stage tried to do what they could but it was too late because the virus had already spread and it's gone all over the country now the there's a panic because the the country is literally not ready for any health issues uh, nearly thousands hundreds and thousands of afghan um, citizens go to Pakistan, India, and other parts of the world for treatment of something simple even. So for the virus, the healthcare system is not ready. They don't have the, uh, the, the, the capacity, both human capacity and training, um, and also the equipment and the uh, urgent, like ICU um, equipment and the PPE and all the, what uh, the rest of the world is, is panicking about, the Afghanistan is even worse. Um, luckily, the spread of the virus has been slow, even though it was a, the expectation was that it's going to really explode and um, cause a lot of uh, problem and the exhaustion of the healthcare system and uh, all, all that as, is not yet hit Afghanistan. They're still waiting because uh, there's, there's lack of testing and uh, lack of actually uh, the knowledge of the, the government about uh, where the virus, uh, which part of the country is really hit hard. So all of that uh, lead to this um, 
lack of understanding and information about uh, what's the what's the actual uh, number at the moment about 1200 um, cases have been identified and the um, number of deaths are uh, lower than a uh, uh, hundred so um, it's still they're still waiting to see what's going to happen but uh, the government has not because of again because of their preoccupation with political issues has not been able to handle this in a um, in a manner that uh, they they will be um, confident and, and people are not confident um, so that is the situation right now. People, uh, uh, because a majority of Afghan population are workers uh, or who, who earn their income on a daily basis. They go on the street. They are they are the um, uh, the vendors on the street corner, or the shopkeeper, or the taxi driver, or the porters, and a lot of the poor people who depend on their daily. Um, uh, earnings um, to, to be outside are, are now, because of the shutdown policy, they're stuck uh, in their communities, in their home. So that has caused another panic. Most people are worried about uh, starvation uh, than uh, coronavirus. Um, and, and, and in some parts of the city, especially in Kabul, uh, people go out anyways, regardless of this shutdown policy, and uh, they have uh, no choice to 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 um, be honest about the, their situation. And there, there's not uh, a, a specific relief uh, program for Afghanistan. Uh, unfortunately, um, all of that leads to a stage of uh, panic. I think. There's probably a lot of interesting parallels there. Um between the dysfunction between uh, federal and local officials I'd like to dive into. Uh, but for now, as you mentioned, kind of the, the federal or the, you know, the national government um, dysfunction, um, you know, for those who haven't followed Afghanistan closely, right, it was already probably uh, pretty confusing enough uh, given what had gone on with the last fall's election and some competing uh, presidential inaugurations that happened earlier this year, which now seem like light years ago. Uh, so luckily, though, I'd like to turn it over uh, to Laurel to kind of catch us up on both, uh, you know, the status of politics pre, uh, you know, pre or during a uh, pandemic as it unfolded. Laurel? Sure. Um, so uh, a quick update on the state of play and the peace process and as it interrelates with the political situation in Kabul. After the U.S. Taliban uh, agreement was signed in Doha on February 29th, implementation immediately hit a snag. Uh, a snag is probably an, an understatement. Uh, there was a provision in the U.S. Taliban de deal calling for an exchange of prisoners at a five to one ratio, up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners supposed to be released by the Afghan government, and up to 1,000 uh, government uh, officials, security officials, um, others associated with the government to be released by the Taliban. And that was all supposed to happen before the anticipated March 10th start of intra-Afghan negotiations, meaning talks among Afghans 
leading towards a peace agreement of some sort, um, hopefully. Uh, the, the problem, I would say, the basic problem was that the Afghan government hadn't agreed to this exchange. It was something that was negotiated between the U.S. and the Taliban. Uh, I'm confident the Afghan government was aware of it, but it's not something that they had actually agreed to. And so there was therefore resistance to implementation of an agreement, a uh, provision, an agreement uh, that they had not actually consented to. And there has been a lot of subsequent negotiation, renegotiation of what the terms of this understanding are on prisoner releases. And there has been a gradual process in uh, in the last couple of weeks of beginning to release some prisoners on both sides, still essentially at a more or less the five to one ratio, uh, but in dribs and drabs. I think we're up to something under 400 um, Taliban who've been released by the government and a smaller number released by the Taliban so far. Uh, it's it's not clear, at least publicly yet, whether there is a um, an agreed understanding of how far that process of gradual releases needs to go before the parties will be willing to sit down in talks. But at least there is some progress towards resolution of this issue. Um, a second factor that has delayed the start of intra-Afghan negotiations is the political crisis in Kabul that Zora referred to in that uh, there is still a, a lack of resolution uh, in a definitive way of the dispute over the outcome of the September 28th um, presidential elections. There were uh, competing inaugurations that were conducted on March 9th uh, by uh, President Ghani, by Dr. Abdullah. I think it's fair to say that the international community uh, at least has accepted the validity of, um, of, of President Ghani's inauguration and the representatives of the international community showed up at his inauguration and not at Dr. Abdullah's inauguration on the same day. Nevertheless, within Kabul, this, uh, this dispute has not been finally resolved and there are still uh, negotiations underway to find some kind of power sharing formula that would be satisfactory to all concerned. Um, this is an issue that stands to some extent apart from the peace process, but as the peace process is at the forefront of the political future of Afghanistan, it's understandably interwoven with di disputes over the peace process. An additional issue has been the formation of a negotiating team on uh, what uh, some are calling the, the uh, Islamic Republic side of the negotiations, some call the Afghan government side of the negotiations. Uh, and that is, an, that is, again, an issue that to some extent stands apart from the political wrangling over the election results, but is interwoven with it. But it's, a, it's an issue that um, 
precedes the presidential elections, and that is the, the difficulty of forming a consensus-based negotiating team uh, that uh, a wide range of relevant power brokers in Afghanistan consent to or willing to participate in and ultimately um, accept the results of their work. Um, on March 26th, uh, the Afghan government uh, announced a team that has been uh, largely accepted across the um, political landscape in Afghanistan. I would say it seems with some grudging acceptance on the part of some, but nonetheless, um, that is some progress. There are still questions outstanding as to how that team will function, whether it will be able to function effectively with consensus and unity, and questions about how it will receive its political guidance, where it will get its negotiating instructions and authorizations from. And there's a process underway of trying to form an additional body that would be the, uh, the supreme body that provides that political guidance. That's not done yet. And again, I mean, there are questions as to how effectively that will function, but there's some work underway. I would say I think it's not coincidental that the announcement of this negotiating team came three days after the U.S. Secretary of State went to Kabul on what can only be termed an emergency uh, visit of one day to try to push the Afghan parties towards resolution of these political disputes and towards final formation of the negotiating team. Uh, and Secretary Pompeo did that by threatening to cut a billion dollars from U.S. financial assistance to Afghanistan this year. That billion dollars represents um, around a fifth of the total uh, U.S. spending in Afghanistan this year, or anticipated spending in Afghanistan this year, uh, it was it was stated as something that would happen if the parties did not resolve their issues, uh, and it seems that that um, that threat stands. Uh, that there hasn't been there has been no statement from the U.S. indicating that enough progress has been made in resolving these political issues and moving forward with the peace process, not to go ahead with the threat. At the same time, exactly how that cut will materialize, when it will be felt, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Throughout this whole process, there's been uh, also uncertainty uh, about how exactly the talks would be conducted, what the venue, the location for talks would be, who the host of talks would be, how it would be weather and how it would be facilitated and what the format would be. And um, Barney might want to say a few words about, you know, what kind of options there may or may not be for that going forward in light of COVID, but we, we could also talk about that in the Q&A. Um, and then, you know, finally, um, there's been what's happened in terms of levels of violence in Afghanistan since the deal was signed on February 29th, and what does that mean for the, the peace process? Uh, the levels of violence have returned to uh, more or less to what they were before a seven-day reduction in violence period that preceded the February 29th signing of the U.S.-Taliban agreement, um, but probably not in ways that 
literally technically violate the terms of the U.S. Taliban agreement. There's a little bit of ambiguity about that, but um, that seems to be more or less the case. But regardless, the the resumption of violence at that level certainly sours the atmosphere for talks. Um, so to, to wrap up on this, I would say, I don't think we can say at the moment um, that COVID is what has, that the coronavirus outbreak is what has slowed down the Afghan peace process. These other aspects that I've mentioned would have been problems even in the absence of the pandemic. And uh, I think it's unlikely that the peace process would have moved much faster if there hadn't been the pandemic. Um, but obviously it's an additional complicating factor now, even if there is the, the will to push forward with the peace process. That's great, thank you, Laurel. The, uh you know, we've, we've been presented with uh, what seemed to be an imminently complex and almost untractable problem pre uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, you know, now we've got a political crisis, an ongoing conflict. Uh, we have a government largely uh, dependent on foreign aid. Uh, we have foreign donors who are looking for the door. Uh, and we have... Um, an almost non-existent healthcare system in country. Uh, so for Barnett, um, you know, faced with all of that, faced with what Laurel and Zora have laid out in terms of the challenges within, the challenges without, the ongoing political challenges, and now this new dynamic. Uh, what are what are your assessments and what are your recommendations for uh, both the peace process moving forward and uh, for future U.S. involvement? Uh, well, thank you. Um, let me start by telling you what I understand is a joke that is going around Kabul these days, uh, which they, people are saying that uh, President Ghani tested negative for the coronavirus, but Dr. Abdullah is insisting on a second round. Uh, now, uh, which indicates how all the different crises are uh, interdependent. But let me let me just go through it one by one. First of all, as Zora said, the the uh, process of uh, the spread of the virus so far has been not as quick and sudden as we might have expected, um, and therefore the direct effects are still, in many respects, uh, waiting to be felt. Um, but but they can be. But there's at least one respect in which it's ver it's obvious but indirect, and that is that peacemaking is not an activity that is consistent with social distancing. In fact, peacemaking consists of bringing people who don't want to, who would like to be distant from each other, closer together. And normally at this time when you have uh, an electoral a dispute over who's the president of Afghanistan, um, uh, man, major problems in implementation of the peace uh, agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban, hopefully coming now to include the Afghan government, you would see a lot of diplomatic activity, people traveling around, going to all kinds of meetings, and you haven't seen that. Instead, uh, diplomats have resorted to doing things like this, you know, having to meet um, via Zoom 
which simply does not work as well because uh, as any, anyone, and, we, and everyone here has been in government, you know, the real work is not done during the actual meetings. It's done in the breaks and in the periods between meetings when people meet. And now there's no longer such meetings. Um, so uh, that has greatly slowed down the process. In addition, you've got the fact that many of the institutions that are involved are now not just preoccupied with the coronavirus, but, su but suffering from it. For instance, let's take the presidential palace in Afghanistan. Uh, apparently, 40 or 50 people in the, presidential pal in the presidency of Afghanistan have tested positive for the virus. And President uh, Ghani himself is quarantining himself in self-protection. Um, the uh, military, the U.S. military, uh, of course, has suspended much international travel. Uh, it had the case of one battleship that was mo pretty much decommissioned because of the virus. Um, and uh, it's unclear, uh, you know, we don't know. And people in military barracks uh, are, again, very susceptible, both the Afghans and the uh, U.S. government. So there's a potential that uh, the spread of the virus could hollow out military readiness. Then, uh, as Laurel mentioned, one of the most important sticking points in the peace process has been about the exchange of prisoners, and the government has been very much uh, slow rolling that um, and imposing uh, conditions on it, which is their right, as they were not parties to the agreement in the first place, and they have some concerns. But the fact is, all around the world, uh, prisons have turned out to be major centers, uh, major hotspots uh, for the uh, for the pandemic in the United States. That's the case. It, um, it, all around the world, there are movements now for releasing prisoners simply for health reasons. Um, and yet, uh, we don't know uh, the prison conditions in Afghanistan, of course, are not better than the conditions outside of the prisons, which, as Zora mentioned, are already uh, pretty desperate. Uh, so we could ex we have it's only reasonable to expect that at some point the disease will be spreading uh, among the thousands and thousands of prisoners. The government has announced that it is releasing many non-political uh, prisoners, non-terrorists, non-security cases, um, uh, be just stuff for health reasons. But still, it's extremely slow because uh, that's just the way the Afghan government is. It's it's not. You know, it's slow, cumbersome, and 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 uh, not very well staffed, except at the highest levels. Um, now, but uh, perhaps the most important effect, and this is some a connection that people also don't make, of the pandemic on Afghanistan, is the effect of the pandemic on the United States, because Afghanistan is dependent on assistance from the international community and primarily from the United States. Afghanistan is one of the five or six most aid-dependent countries in the world. Its military is almost entirely dependent on, the Af on, the, uh, on external aid. Its healthcare system, its educational system, its roads, and, and its import of fuel, uh, operation of its electrical supplies, and so on, all are heavily dependent on foreign aid, primarily from the United States. Now, here, because of the political crisis, uh, President, and uh, in the context of President Trump's desire to get out of Afghanistan, uh, as uh, Laurel mentioned, the Secretary of State has already announced that he's slashing 20% of the aid and threatening to slash another 20% more if there is not an agreement over the dispute between the two claimants to the presidency. Um, 
Um, but more than that, I think, uh, I think many Af- Afghans, I know many Afghans, especially in the high levels of the government, are not taking this as seriously as they should because they think the United States is, you know, needs Afghanistan. It's invested so much. It's concerned about terrorism and so on and so forth. You know, but this pandemic has killed more people than 9-11, killed more people now than the war in Vietnam, the Korean War. Um, and... The United States has so far allocated two and one half trillion dollars. That's trillion. That's twelve zeros uh, for for relief. It already ran out of money from the first tranche that it had set out, and had to approve another half trillion yesterday or the day before. And we can expect more. Um, a situation where and and. Uh, Four million more people went on the unemployment rolls last week on top of 16 million who were there before. Uh, We don't know how the economy is is slowing down. People are talking about possible depression. Uh, Now there's disputes over whether to restart the economy or not because of the danger of reemergence of the pandemic. Uh, While it's still here, it can't say reemergence really. Um, And uh, so in, in a few months, we will have the United States with an economy that is largely in free fall, the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Um, uh, Expenditures in the multiple trillions of dollars that were unexpected. And bear in mind, the United States has postponed the collection of income taxes uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, So the government revenue is going way down, though we don't know exactly uh, how that's... Now, that's not a situation where we can expect the United States to be generous with foreign aid under any circumstances, let alone in an America first administration where the president wants to get out of Afghanistan. So it means that the leadership in Afghanistan should be feeling a tremendous amount of pressure to try to move ahead with the peace process um, before the, uh, Amer- the American withdrawal and disengagement becomes more serious. But I'm not sure that they realize how dangerous that situation is. Yeah, no, it's a daunting perspective. I think we may have lost um, Zora, unfortunately. I had a um, quick question for her. But I guess to continue on with uh, that train of thought, uh, Barney, the, you know, today there was a very good article, kind of overview of Herat and everything that's been happening. Uh, And there was an interesting quote from one of the two vice presidents, Amrullah Saleh, who said basically that he expects – Afghanistan to be the role model for management of the coronavirus, you know, in the third world, uh, being very, uh, very optimistic about the Afghan government's ability to handle this. Uh, meanwhile, the newly appointed mayor of Herat essentially summed up his situation by saying, uh, I'm busy dig- digging graves. And so I guess, uh, both from, for Zora, from an internal perspective and then for, uh, Barnett and Law, from an external perspective, what are the odds that the Afghan government actually navigates this, both to contain it domestically uh, for Zora and then uh, for the other panelists? You know, what do we, what's our level of optimism um, that the Afghan government can walk that tightrope of managing this well enough to, to sustain U.S. involvement and uh, funding? Zora? Zora, you're still on mute. 
Yes, sorry. In terms of uh, handling the pandemic internally, um, the Afghan government is uh, right now they're they're doing their best. The Minister of Health has been given all the authorities by the by President Ghani, and also um, um, uh, the funding to uh, move on. And uh, but the problem is, it's too late for for that. It's, they're at a stage that you cannot uh, prepare at a stage where the virus is already spread and they are supposed to get start the, um, the, the treatment and um, uh, the other stuff that the rest of the world is dealing with. Preparedness, uh, preparedness at, at, at this time is, um, is good if they have the human resources to do both. But uh, at this stage, uh, if the virus doesn't hit um, and stays uh, with a slow spread, I think the government can manage it. But a little bit more than what is the status uh, right now, uh, that will uh, really cause a collapse for the health system, healthcare system. The problem is that Afghanistan, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, uh, with all the um, support and the what for the past 20 years um, that the, the, the opportunity that the government of Afghanistan had in building um, a, a good health system and a, and a public health system that answers to a situation like this. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it is not the case. The healthcare system in Afghanistan is below standard. I had, um, uh, I headed a survey that was a USDA project um, five years ago looking at Afghanistan public health hospitals. And most of those hospitals um, did not have an ICU or, uh, well, I, even a, a simple division um, to treat patients uh, for something as simple as, uh, uh, you know, a, a heart attack, which is, uh, which most people in Afghanistan uh, crossed the border to Pakistan for preventable health, uh, health problems and, and diseases which could have been done in Afghanistan. So that is the situation of the healthcare system, very weak. Um, there's, there are no um, trained specialists in infectious diseases. There are no um, pulmonologists or um, ICU rooms. The, the entire Afghanistan, there are 50 ICU um, units that is not, it's in name ICU, but they don't have the, the, the proper equipment that, uh, uh, answer the need of uh, if there's a surge of uh, coronavirus uh, or uh, COVID-19. Um, so the healthcare system is in trouble if this uh, virus uh, shows up um, more than what is right now. And the problem is that the government facing right now is, is like every other uh, countries are facing is testing. Um, the lack of um, testing kits and more more uh, than that is the lack of the RNA extraction kits which they need to they have some tests the testing kits that some um, countries like um, uh, United Arab Emirates or WHO has provided but they don't have that extraction uh, kits and and there that there's a huge demand but since the, the whole world is in the same situation um, so it's not easy for them to uh, get that they're waiting so they, there's a, the lack of testing is, is um, the reason why the government don't know uh, what's the, the total number of uh, COVID-19 um, patients in the country. Um, so to handle that internally, 
unless the situation remains the same, it's going to be um, a problem. The Ministry of Public Health of Afghanistan have um, actually an announced that probably over 16 million people will be um, uh, contracting the virus and uh, thousands would be um, dead because of it. Um, and the fear and, and that, that I personally, as someone who works in Afghanistan and dealt with the health situation and healthcare issues, um, uh, I, I'm afraid that the, the, uh, because of the low capacity of the uh, healthcare uh, facilities and uh, uh, personnel, um, that there would be a collapse in the, uh, if there's a surge. We are trying to help uh, with the, in, in collaboration with WHO. Uh, here from US, um, Global Watch Group is a nonprofit organization who's trying to provide online training um, uh, using the Afghan American or other uh, Farsi and Pashto speaking uh, medical um, doctors and other, other clinicians, nurses who have dealt with COVID 19 in the US. Uh, and uh, to provide training and guidance to local doctors. A lot of doctors are afraid to go to work because of their, um, the fear that there, there's the, the protection um, equipment is uh, they're lacking, but also they don't know how to treat um, these patients. It's something new. So it, it doesn't, the picture doesn't look good if the virus is uh, going to surge. At this moment, it's okay, but uh, as um, uh, Laurel um, um, and Barney mentioned, because of the political situation, the preoccupation of both um, the the president, Ashraf Ghani, and also Dr. Abdullah in the political situation has led to um, this lack of preparation. Uh, The Ministry of Public Health is doing its best, I think. WHO is there helping. Um, and then uh, the, the general population is uh, trying to do, uh, I, I understand a number of um, Afghan um, uh, businessmen and uh, businesses are um, helping to um, provide some relief for poor, for those uh, people who have stayed at home. Um, but that's not enough. Right. And the situation is, is, is it's going to be dire. So on that note, uh, Barney, what's, your thoughts on what Zora is discussing, and then you know, is is there any scenario where the Afghan government comes out stronger uh, from uh, this event and pandemic, or you know, is it is it going to further weaken both its position both internally and as a negotiating power? Well, um, first, I would actually like to uh, mention this, a, a, a problem that we. Uh, that I neglected to mention before, which is, which is the rise in food prices. There was also an article in the New York Times this morning about how around the, the globe, the pandemic is causing an increase in hunger. And, and according to the uh, UN's World Food Program, the greatest threat of starvation in various places that we have seen in decades and uh, Afghanistan is a country where 50% of the people are under a very low poverty line, where people live uh, on the edge of, uh, of uh, just supporting themselves uh, all the time. And food prices now are about, uh, basic commodities are now about 20% higher on the whole than they were before 
the pandemic hit Afghanistan, and the, the trend seems to be going up. Partly that is because of the periodic closure of the borders with the neighboring countries, um, and because of the effect on transport and, and uh, economic activity of the pandemic. So that's something to keep uh, our eye on as well, because um, rising food prices and hunger uh, is a major source of political unrest and uh, a major reason that military forces break down is when the soldiers are not are either too sick or are getting fed are not getting fed so that is something to uh, anticipate as well um, as far as the government being strong there's no government in the world um, that seems to be uh, uh, that seems to be benefiting from this overall. Even China, which is doing best, is suffering from some internal problems as a result of its handling of it. However, the political leadership on all sides in the Afghan conflict, both the government and the Taliban, are trying to use this problem to demonstrate their confidence and their competence. And Amrullah Saw, has made, a vice president, is, is making those boasts. Uh, about uh, you know how well they will handle it and so on. The Taliban have been staging uh, videos and press uh, uh, press availabilities where they show up dressed in hazmat suits and claim that they are training people. Um, uh, but what it ha- what it hasn't shown actually is either side um, seeming to show political responsibility and leadership on recognizing how dangerous the situation is. Um, and how they really uh, are, are, are very likely not going to be able to uh, play these little maneuvers in the future as food prices go up, the disease goes through their military forces, the prisons, and so on, diplomacy collapses. Because remember, the next stage in the peace process would be going to these intra-Afghan negotiations somewhere in Norway, in Qatar, maybe in a part of Afghanistan, it was wherever. But that is something that cannot happen now because people are not traveling around and meeting. And a piece, and the sensitive negotiations like that are, would be almost impossible to do like this remotely because people have to meet and talk through a lot of complicated issues. So as far as I know, no one has even started thinking through simply the practicalities of how to have a peace negotiation uh, in, a, in, the, in the case of the pandemic. So I, I think that uh, my impression from a distance is that all sides of the political leadership in Afghanistan appear to be overconfident of both about their capacity to uh, meet the challenges that are likely to come ahead. And even though I would say on the health, on the purely health side, as Zora has said, the Ministry of Public Health, it does seem to be trying to mobilize itself, but it won't be able to succeed unless the political leadership really gets behind it to create the conditions under which it can operate. Um, and uh, that that would be almost impossible in any case, uh, given. But it's uh, it, it's not very evident right now. Yeah, Laurel. So following up on that, Laurel. Yeah, the, it, in response to Barney as, as well. If you could also spend a little bit of time on your take on you know we talked about the government, but what about the Taliban? We focus a little effort on there as well. Sure. Um. You know, just to add to to what Barney was saying a little bit. Uh, you know, the governments around the world that have benefited, if you want to put it that way, um, politically from their handling of the coronavirus are the ones that had extraordinarily strong capability to get ahead of the crisis to prevent the spread uh, and that and that achieved 
political unity in doing so, or at least a sufficient unity. I mean, we, we saw just last week in South Korea, for instance, the government uh, won, the government party uh, won a big election in the legislative elections way beyond what had been previously anticipated because the government was seen as having very um, well handled the virus outbreak and prevented its spread. But th those are the exceptions, not the rule. And it's not a criticism of the Afghan government per se uh, to, uh, to note the, way, the places in which they have um, capability deficiencies because there are much more, um, there are governments around the world, countries with much more robust social safety nets than Afghanistan that are also concerned about the spread of hunger and the rise of food prices and, uh, and the economic impact. And so it, it seemed, you know, I think it's inconceivable that a country at Afghanistan's level of development will see less economic impact, less you know, food insecurity impact than countries that are better positioned from the get-go to handle it. Uh, and Afghanistan's not going to be less dependent on external resources, on foreign donor aid uh, in the context of the pandemic than it was before. There isn't a, there isn't a lot of give there in the system. I, I disagree slightly with Barney on the question of whether you could, um, if there was the will to push ahead with peace process to do it. I think it is complicated and it would be unusual, but I could imagine a scenario, and I think there is some consideration being given to this, in which, for instance, if you had the intra-Afghan negotiations in Doha, you could fly the uh, Islamic Republic team there, you could all be in one closed hotel, you could, you know, have people wait two weeks before they meet face-to-face -face in a, a sort of semi-quarantine, you could have health checks. It would be unusual and it would be difficult, but um, but I don't think it was it would be impossible, and and I don't think that's what's holding up the process right now. As for the Taliban, you know they um, they've uh, at least taken this situation as uh, a propaganda opportunity and have been posting videos and such of uh, trying to demonstrate their response to the uh, the COVID emergency. I don't know how much to make of that uh, in terms of the reality. I, I suspect there isn't a whole lot of reality there. They're not, um, they're not, you know, better positioned to have a really effective response than the Afghan government is. There's a topic, you know, that we might also want to spend a few minutes on, which is a question of whether there should be a humanitarian ceasefire and calls for a humanitarian ceasefire in Afghanistan related to the pandemic. I think, you know, first of all, of course, it's absolutely my view that there should be a, a, an end to the violence in Afghanistan, period. I think that you know, that goes without saying, and that is the objective of a peace process. Um, but I think one of the difficulties in Afghanistan of, of trying to um, 
you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say use, but in the context of COVID, um, make a specific call for a humanitarian ceasefire is that in Afghanistan, I think it's difficult to distinguish a call for a humanitarian ceasefire from a more general call for a ceasefire. Because it's not evident that the Afghan government's response uh, capability is being inhibited specifically because of the conflict. It's not, they, they have limited capability to respond anyway, even in the places where the government is fully in control. And so it's not, at least at the moment, evident that um, if uh, the government had, for instance, access to Taliban-controlled or contested areas, there would be a better response. And as far as I know, but Zora may know otherwise, um, there's also no indication at present that, the, that any sort of international aid agency um, or not NGO aid agency response is being inhibited by the conflict. The Taliban has said at least whether it's true or not, I can't verify that they will cooperate and allow access for uh, humanitarian purposes. Uh, and, you know, there are questions as to whether ongoing conflict speeds and facilitates transmission of the virus. Um, I can imagine ways in which that's theoretically possible, whether it's actually possible or actually um, a factor here, you would have to compare the speed of transmission, you know, in the absence of the conflict going on. I mean, would there, would you, for instance, see much more robust social distancing uh, in areas where there isn't conflict going on? How much is the conflict itself uh, facilitating transmission? But that, that, that could be um, a factor. So again, I mean, you know, I of course think there should be a ceasefire. I'm just not optimistic that the humanitarian situation is going to motivate the Taliban uh, to enter into a ceasefire to any degree greater than they were in the past, which is, you know, to say not interested. Go ahead, Jara. Um, just to add to uh, what uh, Laurel said, um, the Taliban, uh, it, it, is, it has been reports that the Taliban, even though they um, for a long time um, thought of this pandemic as a um, propaganda and uh, did not uh, really uh, follow the, the, the WHO and the UN Secretary General's um, plea for ceasefire. Um, but recently, there have been reports that the Taliban have been indirectly approaching um, uh, some of the um, NGOs or um, aid workers in some provinces, and especially in Kandahar area, uh, to, um, to help them in their area, uh, focusing on the uh, coronavirus uh, prevention and, and control. So there has been that kind of... Uh, approach uh, that they are trying to get the help but without really mentioning it um, even though they show their readiness to stop uh, the, the violence but uh, just in the last uh, at least two weeks uh, over a hundred uh, Afghan soldiers have been uh, killed due to, to the Taliban attacks and so the violence is uh, going on. I was talking with uh, one of the uh, local uh, reporters yesterday from Kabul and uh, what they are saying that and the, the attacks are uh, ongoing and there's no sign of Taliban 
um, uh, paying attention to the ceasefire, um, even though what the uh, UN Secretary General um, asked, uh, this was last week, I believe, um, it was a, a humanitarian ceasefire. It asked all uh, warring parties um, uh, to uh, stop um, attacks because of the coronavirus pandemic. But that hasn't been, uh, seemed to be um, uh, followed by the Taliban. Hopefully they, they will. And now that they see that the coronavirus is heading their regions, they have seen people, um, the virus is spread among the and, and people in the area that they're controlling. So uh, that is uh, a uh, hope that, that that happened. But in terms of the, the, the peace talks, it seems to me that uh, the, even though the government is being um, uh, paying attention more to the, the, the pandemic these days, but uh, peace talks has its own uh, life there. And I think uh, it, a lot is going on. There's a lot of discussion. And then there is a focus, if, if not more, but at least 50 50 um, focus uh, that that um, is in the talk with the Taliban uh, uh, ever since the coronavirus pandemic was uh, an issue you know, was uh, um, uh, brought to the attention of the Afghan government. Uh, the peace talks has not uh, given given any any um, stop. It's going on, and uh, I think it's going to move on unless uh, the pandemic really devastates the country. Um, the government is paying attention. I think there's there's more attention to and the talks with the Taliban than it is to the pandemic and public health issues uh, right now. Um, and uh, because it's it's a, a priority for both for the government and and the, the people. A lot of Afghans are worried more about the the killings from the fightings. And also the starvation, as Barney mentioned, the, 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 the fact that um, the country is facing starvation if the lockdown is, continues. Um, the vast majority of the Afghan population, as I mentioned before, depend on their daily activities to, uh, to bring food on the table. Um, that has stopped uh, shops in Herat alone for uh, over at least over a month. All shops are closed. Um, so people are, are in the brink of starvation, and uh, that could lead to a lot of other problems um, in the country, which is uh, really concerning. And uh, as I, as I uh, said it in, 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 um, uh, before, uh, Afghanistan is, is caught between conflict and a public health crisis, and it's a really bad place to be at this time. And, uh, and uh, that's something that uh, the government uh, is facing right now, but they're not, they're not showing it. Um, the Afghan is showing a strong uh, a, a picture of being in control, but I think uh, if you talk to the Afghan people on the ground, that's not the case. Thanks for that perspective. Um, and as you, as you know, you know, we're trying to balance um, two very complex topics. And so I appreciate uh, you know, everyone's efforts, both in the, the audience and our panelists, in trying to to grapple with something that's consuming all of our time as Americans, just dealing with the pandemic uh, internally, but then in terms of how do we think about that uh, in terms of all the complexities of the Afghan conflict, uh, just adds an entire other layer um, of difficulty, uh, you know, for us to grapple with. We're running just about out of time, so I wanna turn it over to the panelists for some closing comments. And basically, I would just ask, you know, what do we see, um, you know, within the next six months? What are you most afraid of? 
you know, in terms of the factors that might exacerbate, um, you know, what's the damage to the people of Afghanistan. And then also, if there are any ideas for the audience, uh, what does the international community and most importantly, the predominantly American audience here, uh, what should we be thinking of um, and how can we best help Afghanistan navigate this difficult time? Uh, we'll start with uh, Barney. Thank you. Um, well, very briefly, I don't want to say what I'm most afraid of. Uh, I'll, I'll say what I hope for. Uh, and uh, what I would hope is that the international community manages to mobilize itself a little bit, at least, and at least uh, a new UN special representative for Afghanistan has just uh, taken charge in the last couple of days, uh, to try to um, get the parties to act in their con in their conflict with each other uh, as if they recognize the seriousness of the health problems. That means, on the one hand, the single thing the Taliban could do the most for the health of the Afghan people would be to agree to a ceasefire. The single thing the Afghan government could do the most to encourage the Taliban to uh, agree to a ceasefire would be to accelerate the release of prisoners whom they should be getting out of the prisons anyway, simply on public health grounds. Right now, the United States is not in a position to take the lead on that because we're a party to the conflict. I hope, I wish that the United Nations would appoint, would empower its envoy or appoint someone who would have the the authority to mediate over those things. Otherwise, and I, I will say what I'm afraid of, uh, I am afraid that the predictions of the Minister of Public Health of Afghanistan will be true, and you will have deaths in the six figures, which will, as Zora said, overwhelm the system and make it impossible for them to deal with all these other problems. Uh, thank you, Ronnie. Um, Laura, some closing thoughts along those lines? Yeah, and first of all, I fully agree with what Barney just said. I would add, you know, I think the best possible scenario, the best realistic scenario for the next six months is that uh, that intra-Afghan negotiations do get started within some weeks, uh, can't say how many weeks, in whatever format becomes realistic, uh, and that they inch along with ups and downs over a period of many months. I think it's the U.S. is going to be wanting to push the process very fast, specifically because of the U.S. election, that presidential election that is coming in November. I'm extremely skeptical that that push for a fast result will succeed. Uh, and therefore, I think that inching along is, so long as the process doesn't break down altogether, is an, uh, is an okay result. That if we get to the point of an American election and the uncertainties as to what American policy will be after that that follow, um, at least having something underway that can be potentially sustained and something to, to build on and that 
gives the international community, um, the U.S. and others, a reason to continue to support Afghanistan because they see the potential of a, you know, a good enough outcome and are therefore less likely to just abandon the situation altogether uh, is, a, is a good enough outcome. I, I think getting that even minimalist version of what success over the next six months or that minimally optimistic version it won't be easy to do, but I think it would be okay. And it, it points to something that, that Barney just alluded to, which is um, I already think it is crucial for there to be a neutral international facilitator of the peace process who you know, is not an American, not associated with the US government. The closer we get to the US presidential election, the more important that becomes as a way of trying to sustain whatever process gets going um, beyond the American presidential election and you know, the unknowns as to what that's going to bring. No, great points. And uh, Zora, you get the, the last word in the last 30 seconds here. Um, well, um, I want to uh, focus on the U.S. role in Afghanistan. Um, uh, the United States, uh, stepping by stepping away from Afghanistan uh, as as things are developing in the political um, uh, arena, um, it, 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 with COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, um, Afghanistan can use the leadership and technical support, not just the dollar from US, but the technical uh, support, Afghanistan, uh, unfortunately, the healthcare system uh, needs to be uh, developed uh, in a way that not just control uh, this pandemic, uh, but uh, be prepared for future pandemics and, and future health problems. Uh, so the role of United States is very important in being involved in Afghanistan and not to abandon um, because the, the, the way the political situation is going on. Um, uh, Mike Pompeo's uh, uh, decision to stop the aid in Afghanistan, the $1 billion fund for Afghanistan, because of the lack of the cooperation of the two um, uh, leaders at this time, is, is not hurting those two individuals. It's hurting the country. It's hurting the nation. It's hurting the development and the, the security of the, uh, the, the region also to leave Afghanistan uh, for those individuals who unfortunately were not able to, to make it um, by themselves alone. So the technical support, the, the political support, and the um, leadership of the United States, specifically at this time, is very much needed in Afghanistan. And I hope that the U.S. is um, uh, consider that. Uh, I just wanted to mention one point that I heard uh, from um, folks uh, in Afghanistan, especially those who are working for WHO, that the President Trump's decision in cutting funds for WHO has actually directly affected Afghanistan. It's affected uh, uh, many, many countries who have um, the WHO aid in, uh, in, in support of uh, fight against coronavirus. And because the, the fund, uh, this announcement was made, uh, that has uh, affected um, WHO's um, uh, ability to to um, adequately support um, the this uh, Ministry of Public Health and the the um, problem of coronavirus inside Afghanistan. This is what I heard 
And I, I hope that this issue is reversed uh, because WHO can play an important role in Afghanistan and many countries for that reason in the control uh, and uh, um, fight against this uh, pandemic. No, thank you, Zora. I think all the panelists have emphasized the, you know, the, the need for kind of a both leadership and common humanity as we grapple uh, with all these challenges. I appreciate the uh, everyone who joined us today, uh, and particularly our panelists who are beating the drum uh, for us to not forget the problems of the rest of the world while we while we focus inward. Um, thank you for your time. We've got a ton of questions uh, that I'll circulate among the panelists and see if there see if we uh, maybe can answer a few uh, offline. But thank you to everyone for your participation. Uh, stay safe and take care. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.